Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. On March 9, 2016, Physicians for Human Rights and the International Network of Civil Liberties Organisations released a report, Lethal in Disguise, on the health impacts of crowd control weapons by police and security forces at the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. Lethal in Disguise was released on the occasion of a joint report on the proper management of assembly and protest by the Special Rapporteur on the rights to freedom of peaceful assembly and of association and the Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions. The joint report was prepared by a panel consisting of members of civil society, human rights organisations and government and had been requested by the Council in its resolution 2538 in March 2014. These reports are pertinent at a time when police departments are intensively militarising and increasingly preventing protest and assembly, which are inalienable rights and necessary to a healthy and functioning participatory democracy. With me today to discuss the findings and receptions of these reports is Dr. Rohini Jeha, who co-authored Lethal in Disguise and who presented the report to the Human Rights Council in Geneva. Dr. Ha is a research fellow at the Human Rights Center, University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches a multidisciplinary course on health and human rights. Dr. Ha is also part of the clinical faculty at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Highland General Hospital and the Kaiser Medical Center in Oakland, California. Welcome to Gravity, Arakini. Thank you. So this report analyzes six different weapons of crowd control. Yes. And how did you first decide which weapons you were going to study? Well, uh, I guess the best way to explain it is before we did, before we decided on the actual weapons, uh, our focus was on looking at how these weapons were used in different countries and what the issues were with social protest and crowd control. So even before looking at the weapons, we actually interviewed experts from um, many different countries mostly from the International Network of Civil Liberties Organizations, but also other partner organizations. We surveyed them looking at not just the weapons themselves, but um, the whole cascade of events that happens before weapons are used, right? So they, you know, what, why protests are controlled, um, permission systems versus like notification systems. Like in some countries you have to ask permission to mm-hmm. hold a protest. In some countries, you just notify um, all of these things. And then part of that survey was looking at what weapons are most frequently used in those places. And so from those surveys and from like real interviews with people, we kind of came up with a short list and we looked at those weapons specifically and then kind of tried to categorize them into these six categories. So how did you find the people that you interviewed? So, again, mostly they were from our partner organizations at the International Network of Civil Liberties Organizations. So the ACLU and similar organizations in nine other countries that work um, usually litigating civil liberties cases in those countries. So the other countries were, um, among them, were South Africa, Hungary, Kenya, um, the UK, Argentina... Um, and Israel, we also interviewed people from other organizations in the United States, uh, Canada, Canada was part of INCLO actually, and um, Brazil, and several other countries, Ireland, to get an idea of the scope of what's going on in all different range of places. Egypt. So before we discuss the weapons that you studied, with respect to the notification procedures, in yeah. different countries. So which countries were the strictest in the sense that they didn't just require notification procedures, but they required permissions? So a lot of countries on the books have notification, right? Because that's, human rights-wise, that's the only way to do it. That, you know, the freedom of assembly is a like a human right. And basically, rights should not be violated by, by permission. But because of like either local law enforcement procedures and policies or national ones that right is restricted in a various number of ways. So for instance, one of the clearest ones is um, in Israel, there's like a notification procedure, but when you go to uh, the Palestinian territories, 
then there's an entire different law where freedom of assembly is not allowed. Basically, like any small gathering. Uh, in South Africa, they have a gatherings act that uh, gatherings over a certain number of people, and it's not that many, like 10 or 12, are considered illegal gatherings unless they have prior notification to the police. And, you know, a lot of people have, like, strict laws. Like, you notify, and then they give you three days of permission, and then there's all these stipulations on where you can walk and what you can do and things like that that can restrict that, that human right significantly. Even in the U.S., that's all over the place. Right, so uh, time and manner restriction can actually act as as a permission yeah. uh, requirement. Yeah. So, so what were the so the toughest places the occupied territory in Palestine? There's other places that just do it, maybe with less of the legal binding. Egypt, Bahrain are examples where, you know, some people have more uh, stipulations than others, like Shia communities in. Bahrain are a lot more restricted than others, things like that. So like they wouldn't just get permission, no matter what, right? Oh, okay. So then, assuming that a crowd gets permission in the places that you studied, and did the did you find that the police were usually there armed with these particular crowd control weapons that you decided to study, and was that the reason? So different countries are really different. Um, in Ireland, there's been really good communication over the past 10-15 years between police and the local organizations. And so they've been a lot better about what weapons they use or even that police have. If you look in the United States, I mean, talk about militarization of police, I think. You know, the average police officer carries tens of thousands of dollars worth of weapons. Just every day a standard issue. On the other hand, in the UK, you know, they don't have all those weapons on them every day. Like, police don't walk around with tasers on their belts. Um, and then if you look into places like Egypt, then police are using shotguns, like actual shotguns, as a crowd control weapon, which arguably <laughs> is metal pellets, right? Yeah. In Brazil, they call the crowd control police robocops because they're in full riot gear, even for the most minor protests. Well, that's an important point that you have just stated, the militarization of police. So, for instance, in this country, under the National Defense Authorization Act, the 1033 program sends surplus military equipment to local police. And it has been sending mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles and M16s. So why do the local police need, not that? need that? And would they see themselves with armed with these weapons as a sort of occupying force? So they see a crowd as an enemy rather than, you know, their, their job should be to facilitate the crowd uh, and the assembly and make sure there's, you know, no you know, bad apples instead of looking at the crowd as one enemy force. So this is, I think, something that's come around a lot more into um, the forefront of discussion in the past few, in the past year, honestly, since the Black Lives Matter protest. But this idea of what the difference is between community policing and this militarization where basically you're creating this other, right? So for the for any military, there's an enemy, there's an other. And that is a very different concept than what police are supposed to be doing, which is policing their own communities. And when you start arming police in a way that they're basically creating others out of the community that they're working in, you're creating enemies out of those that community. And that's what's happening all over this country, basically. And that's what happened in Ferguson. Exactly. Where the vocabulary used by the police and the National Guard exactly. was very much as if they were an enemy. Right. <laughs> as if they, on the streets they were an enemy and they were an occupying force. Right. And, and we have to highlight that we're talking about an unarmed civilian population, right? Right. Like, maybe there's some bad apples, you know, there's a, sometimes violent factions within a protest that are throwing things or stones or whatever. But, like, essentially we're talking about an unarmed civilian group of people that are protesting. And then when you're using weapons against them, whether you call them crowd control weapons or lethal weapons or less lethal weapons... Like, that's still using weapons against your community. Right, and a community that has 
a right to assemble, a right, yes, speech and assembly. I mean, they are not only fundamental human rights, but they are necessary to a participatory democracy, which you know purportedly we have in this country and in other countries. If you go out and you protest, and even if the police do not use the weapons, but just to see the police armed, exactly. like the military, I mean, that's a very threatening that's a powerful prospect. Yeah. It may work as an effective deterrent against people protesting, as they may be intimidated by a police force that appears to be an occupying military force. They may fear that the police may actually use the weapons, even if they weren't going to. And, you know, you're creating this, this idea of, how dangerous a protest can be, right? In uh, Berkeley, where I live, uh, there was multiple protests last year in December, and I remember even myself being like, I can't go to this protest with my two small children because I don't know what's going to happen. And this is on a university campus. Because you had researched what weapons they were using. Yeah, and they did use them. They fired tear gas on the students here in December. They did? I, I didn't even know oh, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, they, like, came down the street and there was some rough housing and windows broken and things like that. But again, this is a back-and-forth situation. Like, if you start with communication and um, participation and involvement, you might not escalate into the point where you need to use weapons to control the crowd. But that would be one of the primary considerations. I mean, can crowd control weapons ever be a de-escalating force? It's a tough one. They can be a dispersal force, right? So you fire enough tear gas, people will leave. You fire enough bullets, people will leave because it's not worth being there at some point. Do they, the presence of these weapons de-escalate that and let the protest continue? I don't think that that it's not clear that that ever happens. So let's talk a bit about the actual weapons that you studied. So there were six weapons. Right. So the most frequently used weapons that we found are chemical irritants. So classically tear gas, and then more frequently now in in these days, uh, pepper sprays and pepper gases, things like that. And so these are found all over the world. They're produced by multiple manufacturers in multiple different countries. You know, 30 years ago, it was only basically one or two countries that produced these weapons. And now it was mostly the United States. And now it's everywhere. South Africa, Brazil, Israel, they all produce it. And it's very hard to find out South Korea and China. It's hard to find out where they come from, too, to be honest. And there's no, there's no international trade agreement regulating them. There's, there are no, it seems, national regulations that are in, you know, for independent testing as to these weapons. So the Chemical Weapons Convention of 1992 bans the use of tear gas and chemical irritants during war and international conflict. But it does not say anything about their use during civil conflict. And so they're not, you can't use tear gas during a war but you can use it on your own population. No, which is ridiculous. I mean, if it were silent, that it would prob- they were probably silent because they couldn't fathom that you would use it against your own population. Well, I mean, as a crowd control weapon, in theory, it should cause transient tearing and, um, and just be, have limited use. And so if you're really protecting public safety, maybe there's a role for it. But we're running into issues of disproportionate use Excessive use, you know, use when it's not even relevant, and that's when we're running into more and more both health issues and human rights issues. Right. So, so with any weapon, but particularly, I guess, chemical weapons, uh, if they're not regulated as to their making, then maybe the chemical composition is inaccurate for a simple, you know, lacrimation effect, let's say. Uh, and then, I guess, there would be environmental factors. It's so hard to say what's even in the tear gases. Like in our research, we can't assess if there's even a standardized concentration or uh, standardized concentration in the environment around you because every single one is different. There's no regulation. There's no international regulation on them. There's no legal, like standard one. The FDA has nothing to do with it, you know. 
And so who knows if South Korea and Brazil are creating concentrations of the same CS gas. It's impossible to say. So firstly, we have chemical irritants where we don't really know what the chemical irritants are, how they're made. And well, we know, that, we know that the most common ones are called CS gas and pepper spray, which is, you know, highly concentrated hot peppers, but about 10,000 times more than your hottest chili pepper. Um, and so we know that those are generally those compositions. But, you know, CS gas was invented in 1928. There's been limited research on exactly what its side effects are since then. And it was created for the military, right? Pepper spray was created to keep away bears from, like, male carriers, basically. Um, and now they're using it against right, students. Right, professional-grade ones, and they're more and more concentrated. The peppers are more, like, higher, like, um, Schofield units, and so they're insanely hot. They fire much far farther than they used to, and now, you know, and then they're, they're put in gaseous canisters and grenades and things like that. So in your report, you studied the injurious effects of these weapons, and including fatalities. Correct. And you only studied cases where there was a medical assessment. Yes. So what we first started after the surveys was just generally looking at all of these weapons and all of the injuries that you find. And to be honest, if you type in to Google, you know, tear gas and death, you will find a lot more deaths and injuries than we perhaps documented in the report. And this was a real struggle, right? Because when you're limiting it, what you want to do is get the highest quality data. And so we wanted to make sure that every every injury and death that we recorded in our, in our report was one we could confirm came from these weapons. And it's hard because you see YouTube videos, you see someone getting shot by a tear gas grenade or even a rubber bullet and dying. But it's very hard to prove that if you don't have, you know, some standard of evidence. And so we excluded a lot of that. And so we are significantly underestimating right. the number of deaths and injuries. But our hope was not necessarily to create an epidemiological study where we know how many injuries occur per use, but rather to present the range of potential injuries that can occur and the variables that cause these injuries to be more severe. Right, and to your second point, I, I read in your report that a lot of injuries were indirect injuries. For instance, someone getting hit in the head by the canister instead of the actual chemical, <laughs> being yeah. injured by the actual chemical that would come from the canister. Exactly, so a lot of the injuries from tear gas are actually from the can, like traumatic injuries from the canister. Those are a lot more severe. And what we found is that in a lot of places, people are either aiming tear gas canisters directly into the center of a crowd, which is not what the protocol says, or in particularly repressive areas, aiming those tear gas canisters at people's heads, knowing that this is what happens. So there's intentional police abuse. It's not just lack of training as well. Oh, yeah. If you look at videos in Bahrain, they're aiming tear gas canisters at people's bodies. So when you have a chemical weapon and so the environment can affect it, so for instance, it would it be more lethal or injurious in the case of, I don't know, a hot climate or increased humidity or something or exactly. a closed environment? Are there any cases where police have used chemical irritants in a closed environment that has vastly exacerbated their effect? So both of those things are major issues. So the way CS or classic tear glass works is that it's a solid at room temperature and so there's a thermal explosion inside the grenade it explodes there's very very fine powder in a gaseous form and it actually activates when it hits people's skin and mixes with the oil and the water and the sweat on your skin so you know once it hits you it takes five to ten seconds for it to activate and start hurting so if you're in a hotter place right, you have where <laughs> you have more fewer clothes on and more sweat and oil and humidity, uh, you're going to be more affected. The other issue in closed spaces is one of the major issues that we found is that if you use more than your, you know, excessive amounts of tear gas or you're firing it into places where either A, people cannot get out or the tear gas can't, you know, 
disperse into the air, then you're looking at serious numbers of severe injuries and deaths. So, you know, we have a case of um, tear gas canister being fired into a bus where everyone was really injured by that, was had a lot more side effects from that, especially respiratory, because typically you should get out, run away, get some fresh air, and you'd be okay. But you're stuck on this bus, they won't let you off, and they fire a tear gas canister in there, that's what's going to happen. To, you know, there's this case in Egypt, I think, where people were left inside, protesters were left inside a closed van for several hours in the heat. And so it was already super hot inside there. They were banging on the doors because they couldn't breathe and they couldn't get out. And they're, you know, stuffy in the middle of Egypt for several hours in the midday heat. And so one of the police officers tried to get them to stop banging and making a um, fuss in there. So a tear gas canister was fired into the van. 30, I think 40 passengers, doors closed. An hour or so later, they opened it and 37 people were dead. So the mix of the overheating and then having an excessive amount of tear gas in this closed space where people couldn't get out, and that's what you end up with. Which is something that the guards should have known. <laughs> Even You don't have to be a chemical you engineer or a doctor to know that if you have a very, I mean, we're talking about an extremely enclosed space, yeah, just the back of the van. Yeah. And they didn't even check on them. They didn't realize that the knocking had stopped. Well, by the time they did, everyone was, yeah. (laughs) So So, that's an egregious example. And then, you know, there's other examples in multiple countries had issues with um, stampedes. From this, so um, sports stadiums are a major issue for this, which isn't necessarily social protest, but it's inappropriate use of crowd control weapons. So you know, there's a small exit area. You fire tear gas. People go crazy. They all want to get out, and you cause stampedes and deaths. So Egypt, there's been a case, two cases in the last year alone, but also South Africa, Uganda, a bunch of countries have had stampedes from crowd control weapons that have caused deaths. And the, what crowd control weapons caused the most stampedes, or was it just These dispersal the weapons, like stun grenades and um, tear gas, probably caused the most chaos. And so stampedes are a major issue with that, because when everyone's exposed, they just need to get out. And then you get a lot of deaths from that. Right, so when they're trying to control a crowd, what they actually do is cause chaos by, <laughs> and stampede and you know, injury to people. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a paradoxical ironic. Yeah. yeah. So what other weapons uh, did you study? So then, um, so rubber bullets and um, plastic bullets and other kinds of projectiles, we categorized as kinetic impact projectiles because there's so many different kinds. There's different kinds of bullets, and there's different kinds of, of launchers or guns, right? And this ranges everywhere from your classic PVC or plastic rubber bullet, which is kind of a cylindrical thing, to multiple bullets kind of coming out of one launcher at the same time, and to um, what they use in the Palestinian territories mostly, which is uh, rubber-coated metal bullets. So it actually has a metal or lead core with a thin, hard plastic covering over it. We found those are super dangerous. Um, in and and that was, that's used in the Palestinian occupied territory? Correct, but not in Israel. So in Israel um, banned the use in 2003 after a commission found that it was um, I'm, I'm taking this from your report. <laughs> yes, those are not allowed in Israel proper. But, but they, they use it. Right, so they're used by the IDF in the Palestinian territories. Okay. Um, in the U.S., we commonly find a lot of beanbag rounds, which are basically small cloth synthetic bags with tiny lead pellets in them. The plan is that they come out of the launcher, expand, and then hit hard, but then have a larger surface area so they don't penetrate the body. But if they hit you in the head or if they hit, don't actually expand, they've been known to penetrate the body and be found inside. Um, in you, the UK and in 
Northern Ireland, they have um, these things called attenuated energy projectiles or sponge rounds, where the tip is a little softer than the than hard rubber, so that it prevents it either it's hollow or softer, so it doesn't penetrate or shouldn't penetrate. And then finally, like I mentioned, several countries, especially in Egypt, use straight-up shotgun rounds, birdshot, which is technically used to shoot birds, or sometimes buckshot, um, which are much bigger. As made, and rounds. what are they made from? The Those are metal, like lead shot. Oh, so it's just... So ranges of sizes between what would kill a bird and what would kill a deer. Oh. So, and, and would they still be classified under kinetic so impact? In the United States, no, shotgun pellets would not be, yeah. but Egypt does classify that as a less lethal weapon and uses that oh, crowd okay. control. But that must be good for their statistics. <laughs> <laughs> so also I read in your study that Israel commissioned a study for uh, these particular um, kinetic weapons and it, they seem to have a very limited range of use. It's, uh, I believe, 50 to 60 meters is the only time away, away from a person that you can use these weapons. So it doesn't really allow so much ability to use them, does it? So first of all, yes. It, I mean, if you, I would say first of all, finding guidelines on using these weapons is limited because they're not openly accessible or transparent to the public, right? Number two is if you actually do find some of these protocols, which we've hunted for ad nauseum and tried to find, then the, the guidelines are all over the place. And so every time you change weapons, like, you know, if your police department gets a new weapon every year, the guidelines could go from 20 meters to 40 meters to 60 meters back to 30 meters. And so unless you're doing full-on trainings for each of these weapons, like, it changes all the time. And number three... How many police officers know the difference between 20 meters and 40 meters? It's really hard to tell, especially... Oh, like particularly in the U.S. and the Chinese. Well, exactly. <laughs> or even feet, but like how, you know, especially in like a fast-paced, dynamic right. environment that you're supposed to be estimating speed. If you look at what police and even lay people can estimate, it's so dramatically off. Right. That, you know, you don't know how far you're firing. And up close, at close range, all kinetic impact projectiles can be fired at speeds like as fast as light ammunition. And they could be quite lethal. Oh, yeah, because they're just, you know, they're being fired as fast as a gun. Right. And on the other hand, because of how they're shaped and things like um, their, their speed and their tumbling, at long distances, they're like beyond inaccurate. And so you could aim at the feet, but you're going to hit the head or something like that. And cause injuries that way, yeah. hitting somebody in the eye instead of hitting them uh, in the leg or something. Right, which most guidelines say you should aim at the legs. Now, there was also a weapon that you studied that impacted people's hearing that was meant to be least offensive. Right, <laughs> so a couple of the other weapons we looked at I mentioned the stun grenades or concussion grenades that um, also are called flashbangs and they cause like a sudden flash and a loud bang that can scare people and acoustic weapons, so sound cannons. Um, the most common one used in the U.S. now more and more frequently is called the Long Range Acoustic Device. It's a brand name, LRAD. Basically, it's an like incredibly loud long range speaker. And again, started for use in the military, but now more used to crowd control weapons. And, you know, it can be targeted, basically. But it could be dangerous. You know, a woman in Philadelphia um, had a lawsuit settled because she was a bystander. And she lost hearing from exposure to this. Right, so you can't really target. You, you can only target a general area. And then anybody there, whether they could be a toddler that's more sensitive or exactly just, yeah and then we add to that that you know like you need people to be able to run away from this and you need um you know you have like police officers and stuff also exposed to it if they're in the wrong area because this is just turned on in the back of the machine 
and safety controls are an issue. And the people operating these machines, that the, they're right next to it, right? So They're behind it. They're supposed to wear headphones or earplugs. But still, it's a danger, you know? What if you run in front of it accidentally? What if it's supposed to be at 20 feet that, you know, you start having people there, but if people run towards it, things like that. Um, in the Oakland Occupy protests, we heard a lot of people just anecdotally talking about how painful the acoustic weapon was. And if it's so painful, they would be quite disoriented. I mean, particularly if they don't know what's happening, if they've never heard of this weapon before. And again, with disorientation, yeah. with the crowd. It's not necessarily safe to cause chaos in a large No. <laughs> so another weapon were water cannons. And I believe England, one of the English police force wanted to use them, but the Home Secretary denied their claim. Yeah, this was a major issue a couple of years ago. The... Um the London police uh, wanted to reinstate water cannons, so they haven't used them in years, and uh, caused a huge outcry, and the Home Secretary said no, because really their safety is unknown, and also we're talking about, um, so the basic water cannon is just very high speed, high pressure water being shot, and so the injuries that can occur from that are mostly secondary, from falling or hitting objects, or objects hitting you. Um, but also there's issues of using it in cold temperatures and cold right, weather. Um, and then more and more frequently the use of dyes, UV dyes, and sometimes smelly malodorous um, chemicals inside water cannons to kind of augment their effects in different ways. So is that a shaming ritual? Completely. It's a collective punishment and a humiliation issue, right? So if you're spraying everybody pink you know, you're collectively shaving them. If and branding them as part of the particular protest. Exactly. Right? And these are dyes that sometimes take days to come off. Um, if you're using UV dyes that, you know, would maybe be clear and not noticeable in normal daylight, but then you can see them under UV light, um, we're talking about potentially targeting people for uh, punishment later on. So if they seek assistance in a medical facility or something like that, then they can be found out. And so that's dangerous. And then there's this new weapon called the skunk, again being used by Israel. Um, in the occupied territories? Actually in Jerusalem too, but mostly in the Palestinian neighborhood, um, where it's this malodorous, uh, they say it's uh, like a yeast-based thing, but it smells terrible, it lasts days to weeks, and, you know, they're spraying it in neighborhoods. This isn't, like, just in a square, right? So neighborhoods, businesses, houses get covered in this. It lasts for days. We haven't seen any actual injuries, per se, from that, but a lot of nausea and, again, collective punishment. Problem sleeping. Yeah, like, you don't want to be there and your business is going to close down. Whole neighborhoods. Right. So not many places to go unless you need to <laughs> in the neighborhood you have to leave the yeah, neighborhood it's all unpleasant yeah. exactly so now if we're looking at crowd control weapons so we're looking i guess the aim is to look at the crowd as one entity but a crowd is never an entity and if anyone is going to be you know violent in a crowd and you have to isolate them now how can these weapons isolate you know, so-called bad apples if they're weapons that are you know, meant to be used in a crowd setting. So they're not. Regular policing is what would isolate, you know, bad apples or violent factions within a crowd, right? So arresting the people that are doing the actual bad thing, not the 10,000 people around them. Right. Um, finding those people, talking to them, communication. Uh, the special rapporteur's uh, report highlighted ex one thing that was really, really important is that um, just because there's a small violent faction in a crowd that does not take away the human right of everybody else to continue to protest. And also, you know, the crowd, um, the protest organizers are not necessarily to be arrested or found responsible for whatever the small factions in the crowd or violent person does, that that's a whole separate issue. And so a lot of countries will put organizers in jail or arrest them or hold them responsible for the actions of the entire crowd. 
And that's kind of a flawed thinking as well. Punishing the leaders of a protest is a means to deter people from organizing protests in the first place and thereby prevent protests from occurring. It's political, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a way to deter protest uh, and threaten people. So also one of the recommendations from the Special Rapporteur Report was that police not only need to be trained in the use of these weapons, which currently, I guess, there's a complete lack of training. So I would say some police, are, I mean, it's totally local, right? So some police maybe are trained very well and many, many, many are not. And how can you use the weapon appropriately, even if you wanted to, so you don't cause injuries and indirect injuries if you're not trained? Uh, and, and this training is just haphazard all over the place. Like some places, they just, you know, they change the weapons regularly, and that training needs to be regular. But aside from training with, with uh, training with respect to how to use the weapons uh, and abuse. There's no conflict management procedures. It seems that that's lacking. The Special Rapporteur Report really looked at that and made a recommendation that every police department and, you know, state guard and so forth needs to have uh, very accurate reporting procedures so everybody knows what they're in charge for and needs to have ability in conflict management so they could actually talk to the crowd. Exactly. So one thing, I mean... My biggest take home from this whole report is, is that it's not necessarily what weapon is used, but it's how it's used and when it's used. So communication, the decision to use that weapon and how you use it causes the injuries, not necessarily any weapon, you know, your common baton can cause death, right? Um, but it's all of those decisions before and then the accountability after that change how it's used. And what accountability is there? So if you're looking at, you know, most modern societies, if you use a live gun in any sort of situation, policing or otherwise, those bullets are accounted for. The guns are checked regularly to see how many they've been fired, what bullets have been fired, how many have been fired, what police officer is assigned that gun. That does not exist for crowd control weapons, right? So you don't know if launcher X fired 100, launcher Y fired two, um, or if everybody's firing the same amount. You don't know who fired the bullets and that targeted people's heads. The only way you're finding this out is essentially through social media at this point. So that kind of accountability is just not there. That's a fundamental basic policing issue. Uh, surveillance of injuries. So, you know, if you're police, uh, if you know that you have a protest and XYZ number of people went to the hospital, Law enforcement should record that. There should be regular surveillance of that kind of thing so you know the kind of damage you're causing. There should be discipline and even prosecution when police have abused their powers, abuse that can be in certain instances, such as police officers that threw flashbang grenades into a toddler's crib here in the U.S., so far removed from their duties as police that the fact that they are police should not shield them from criminal sanction. But then again, if we don't know what weapons are being used and who's using them, then there's no real way that you could prosecute anybody and exactly. then they have absolutely no accountability. And there's no accountability down the line. So that's like the lowest level, right? But then if you're selling these weapons as a private manufacturer to repressive regimes that you know are committing human rights atrocities, then where's the accountability for that? So a great case, an example that... Um, our colleagues worked on was uh, Bahrain Watch, which is a human rights organization in Bahrain, actually found an invoice or something identifying that the large amount of tear gas that's coming into their country was mostly being produced in South Korea. And so because of this one small invoice or whatever that was leaked, they were able to communicate with Amnesty International in South Korea and advocate and fight for the South Korean government to stop selling to a repressive regime in Bahrain that's basically using it, targeting it against specific neighborhoods and communities. But that is one tiny example, right? Like you look at how many hundreds of thousands of tear gas canisters were fired in Turkey in 2013 in the Gezi Park protests. Somebody's making a lot of money off of this, right? But you're selling them to communities that are like, you know, not using them for safe crowd control weapons. 
And there's no accountability for that, you know? Right, not even from the domestic governments of the manufacturers. Exactly. I mean, in the South Korea case, it was more, it seemed media pressure. It was media and NGO pressure, completely. Media and NGO pressure. So what we need is we need accountability on the manufacturing end, trade controls. Exactly. We need uh, training of police for each weapon. And then we also need training of police in conflict management. Yeah, and, and policing of crowds and communication with communities and protesters. And possibly one thing that in the that I noticed in Special Rapporteur Report, they said that it's very important for a police unit that's policing a community to have to represent the demographic of the community. Yeah, that's a huge issue. If you look at what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. And one of the major issues is that the police are very different demographically than the community that they're policing. And that happens in a lot of places. And in a way, if, the, if you have this disparate demographic, the police can look at the crowd as outsiders, you know, whether subconsciously it affects them or consciously. Oh, yeah. That it should, it might definitely have an impact as well as on the crowd that's looking at a very heavily armed force that's not consistent with their own demographic. Um, exactly. So we go back to that idea of the other, the enemy, being in your neighborhood, in your homes. Now, back to the um, this indiscriminate use of crowd weapons. So these weapons that aren't, they're not uh, regulated in their manufacture, so we're not really sure whether, uh, for instance, when you were looking at tear gas, you're not sure of like the particular composition, so maybe some instances where you found people were injured more than in others could have been because the chemical composition yeah. was different. Right, and we're looking at an active ingredient, CS gas, right? We don't even know the concentration of that. Forget all the different formulations it could be in, right? It could be in a bunch of different um, compounds, methylene chloride or a bunch of different chemicals that it could also be combined with that tear gas to make it explode. And, you know, there's so little research on all of this. We don't even know what's in it with there. And leaving aside the fact that it's a crowd control weapon and whether, you know, inherently you can see a crowd as one unit, uh, if it's... If whatever weapon is directed at a certain place, and usually it would be a public place, if you have protests, you have uh, vulnerable groups. You vulnerable have kids. Groups. The you have people with asthma. You have people with allergic skin issues. You have ninety-year-old people, and you have bystanders and neighborhoods and communities. Not necessarily just a bunch of twenty-year-olds who are perfectly healthy you know, protesting. These are, you know, this is part of democracy. Everyone's out there. And when you're looking at all these vulnerable groups and you don't know what's attacking them, you really need to think about what's a proportionate use of force and when that force use of force is actually necessary. If ever, in a crowd situation. And the vast majority of times, I would argue it's not. Yeah. So there's also, so these crowd control weapons, that you looked at crowd control weapons that were currently in use, so that you would record the, you know, whether there were any fatalities or injuries because they had already been used. But did you look at uh, any research of weapons that haven't yet been used or haven't, have just been tested, so there's insufficient information? And yeah, so uh, I'll mention one that's super scary in a second. But um, one weapon that's used as a less lethal weapon for policing often um, are these electrical conduction devices, the tasers. So usually those are not used in crowds right now because they're more a one-on-one -on -one device, right? Basically you shoot, it hits um, the target with these two small pointers, you shoot electricity in the person and they go down multiple times sometimes. And you know, Amnesty has recorded something like 500 deaths in the past 10 years from tasers in the U.S. alone. And we haven't seen them as frequently used in crowd control, but this is a less lethal weapon that people are considering using, right? And then I'll get to the one that I find very, very concerning because the U.S. military is pouring a lot of money into Heat research rate. in this. 
the heat ray. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, we call this category the directed energy weapon. But what are they calling it? The denial. There was something. It yeah, it's called make any active sense. denial. So basically, yeah, it's supposed to be um, non-ionizing, and I'll mention what that means in a second. Radiation shot from up to a kilometer away. So you might not even see the weapon that's being fired at the crowd. And it causes this radiation sensation on your skin where it feels like your skin is burning um, on fire. So it activates pain and temperature re uh, receptors on your skin. Now, it's only, it's non-ionizing is what it's supposed to be. So ionizing radiation is the kind that causes uh, disruption of cells. So cancer, yeah. cancer or um, basically messes up your cellular structure. Non-ionizing is not supposed to do that. And then this UV ray is only supposed to penetrate about half a millimeter in depth. So it activates those cells. But there's parts of your skin, especially in your eyes and your face, that, you know, there's vital organs half a centimeter deep in your skin, right? Or your eyes. And so that can cause real issues. And then you're talking about a weapon that's being fired from a kilometer away, potentially. So... I'm not sure how the protest is going to, protesters are going to communicate with whoever's firing this and how the people who are firing this have any way of knowing what's going on on the ground from such far distances. There's a whole other issue, right? So they wouldn't even know, and particularly if they want to implement this, you know, domestic drone program for crowd control, <laughs> whether anyone would really know what these weapons are doing to the people on the ground. I mean, and right, and it's coming out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden you feel your skin's on fire, and you don't know which way you're supposed to go to get out of that. Now, I will say the U.S. military is testing this. They actually deployed this to Iraq um, a couple years ago. As a testing ground. As a testing okay. ground, because it's a military device. They never used it there. And then they tried to... Uh, test it in the LA County Sheriff's Department, the police's police there, but before the testing even started, they didn't. And there's been, you know, testing on volunteers, quote unquote, in the military, and there has been significant injuries and some skin burning and blisters from something like this. And yet, this is one of the major new weapons that we're pouring money into testing. And, you know, I would argue that there's a lot more value in spending money and all the other stuff, and not creating new devices, we don't necessarily need. And again, it's a disorienting advice. So even if it didn't cause burns or, you know, right. any, any direct injurious effects, I mean, what is the benefit of causing chaos in a crowd or causing right. chaos, you know, a kilometer away that could affect people that, you know, aren't protesting, elderly, children, right. pregnant women? Yeah. <laughs> And, and people don't, if they don't know what's going on, you know, are they going to act in a rational manner? Are they going... And we're, I mean, we're calling these broadly crowd control weapons, but that is certainly not going to control any crowd. So, Although, it's terrifying. Possibly they want it to be terrifying so that people just don't protest because right. they are being controlled right. by these weapons right. in a more uh, insidious manner. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. And the, the research, now, you said that we don't have much research on these weapons that are currently being... Um, well, even if there was, they're not out. Yeah. I think it's classified. Yeah. A lot of the research, again, is on military volunteers, which are basically soldiers who are asked to participate in these studies to see if this is dangerous. This isn't, like, peer-reviewed literature research in major journals here. And so, you know, first of all, there would be major ethical issues with testing weapons and doing research on weapons at baseline but you know who's doing these tests how are they conducting them none of that is transparent so what was the reception of the special rapporteur report and your report at in geneva in march this year so we presented it at the u.n human rights council meetings in march at the 31st session and i think in general it was very very positive and i believe one of the i think the u.n special rapporteur um, meeting in a related resolution passed recently. Um, and certainly there's issues. So the major issues that, that countries had with it 
was this issue of the responsibility of crowd protest uh, of crowd organizers um, and when you decide that you know countries should do it but these issues of regulation and things like that I think a lot of people see as obvious and that that they should be done but it's so hard to take that next step it's a long process right but I hope that this report causes people to think about it more and is another small step towards this multi-year hope that there'll be more regulation, more control of these weapons, and more awareness from all sides, from healthcare workers, from protesters, from law enforcement, and from policymakers on the issues around these weapons. Well, if we don't know about it and we're not discussing it, then you know, we're not going to exactly. move forward. We need to have these issues out in the open. And like you said, from all stakeholders, and uh, see that these crowd control weapons are really causing the effects that they are, that they're not, you know, less lethal. I mean, what does that even mean, less lethal? Right. <laughs> less lethal than what, exactly? Less lethal. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is they were, you know, 20 years ago, the name was non-lethal weapons. And clearly they're not non-lethal. So then they get started getting called less than lethal. Right. Um... And then some advertising from the industry calls it soft kill weapons, I was reading, which is... I can't. And then they went to less lethal, right? because they're not less than lethal. And we made an active choice to not call them that, to call them crowd control weapons, because they certainly can be lethal. Right. And unfortunately, they are being lethal. I mean, how, how many yeah. fatalities did you record? So the from the impact projectiles, like rubber bullets and things like that, over 70, um, especially with hits to the face and the head and the eyes. So if it penetrates your eye, you almost certainly lose your eye. Oftentimes that goes into your brain through your eye because it causes a lot of skull fractures and neck injuries, things like that, to vulnerable body parts. Tear gas itself, we only identified two from the canisters, um, but that, again, is severely underestimating what we know to be many, many more deaths, but they're very hard to confirm. And we wanted to make sure our report was relevant by ensuring the quality of every single injury that we recorded. And so we missed a lot so of So if ones. anything, it's underreported. Oh, and even our report is significantly underestimating the number of injuries and deaths, yeah. We're also only looking at medical reports from something like 12 countries, right? Because you know, a lot of countries don't publish their injuries. A lot of people don't have the resources to do a scientific study or to record the number of injuries in their hospital. Yeah, a lot of people might not even go to the hospital. Exactly. So you would never know. You never know. Well, hopefully the, this report will get increased publicity and this issue will get increased publicity and everyone will see that uh, these less lethal weapons are actually being targeted at uh, communities and people that are just, they're expressing themselves, they're uh, forming assemblies, they're performing a vital function of our democracy, and in response, they are being punished, they're being injured, and they're being killed. Exactly. And we yeah, I do hope we get more attention. Yes. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Rockney. You're very welcome, Alex. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.